Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church, so you can make your way to the back. And please take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 39. You know, as I prepared this passage of Scripture, if you can just visualize what is happening to the Lord, it, it was a hard scripture to study. When you think about the suffering that our Lord experienced, and when you know that that suffering was because of his love for us, if it doesn't touch you in some way, you, you have a heart of stone. This passage of scripture, I think sometimes we have reviewed the Lord's crucifixion so many times that kind of like what Ian was talking about with the music that becomes so familiar it loses its meaning. Sometimes as Christians we can fall into the danger of something even as important as the crucifixion losing its meaning. But as I studied Mark, I started to see something that I hadn't seen before. Mark structures his account of the Lord's crucifixion in a parallel way to a passage in the Old Testament. When you go to the Old Testament, the 22nd Psalm, hundreds of years before crucifixion was put into practice, and certainly hundreds of years before our Lord's crucifixion was done, the psalmist gives us a very startling picture of crucifixion. So before we go to Mark, what I would like for you to do with me is turn to the 22nd Psalm. And because Mark's account is structured so closely to what the psalmist writes, I would like for us to read a part of the 22nd Psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted you, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. 
Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now that's a glimpse into the 22nd Psalm. And even a casual reading of it, we can see descriptions that picture for us the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the piercing of the hands and feet, the bones or the joints that, that are pulled out of joint when crucified. They would take the cross and drop it into the ground, dislocating many of the joints of those who were being crucified the casting lots for the garments, all of these things are pictures of Jesus' crucifixion hundreds of years before it took place. So why is Mark focusing on the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus in light of the 22nd Psalm? The answer is simple. He focuses on the 22nd Psalm to once again affirm Jesus is the Messiah. You see, the 22nd Psalm is a messianic psalm. It was a promise by God that one would come and be crucified and experience the torments that are described. But what's great about the 22nd Psalm is this. It goes on to talk about how this person would reign and rule. It doesn't end with the crucifixion. It ends with victory. So Mark is foreshadowing the victory that is Jesus's, and when we trust Christ as our personal Savior, it is a victory that is ours as well. One other observation about this passage. Mark also is writing to a Gentile audience. Many of those in Mark's audience would eventually face persecution themselves. So in Mark relaying to us what Jesus experienced, He's encouraging those who will face persecution as to how to stand firm and endure to the end in the face of terrible persecution. So all of these lessons are part and parcel of what Mark shares with us. Now when we come to the first part of this passage, the 16th verse, we find that Mark is sharing with us what happens when Jesus appears before the um, guards. And I just accidentally went too far. There we go. What we find is the guards are pictured for us, the scene where they are persecuting Jesus Christ intensely. And what we see with these guards is an observation about how people who persecute often mock what they don't understand. And notice I use the term fools. These people are fools, not in the sense that sometimes the word fool is used by us to describe a dimwit or something like that. When we look in Scripture, the definition of a fool is somebody who says that there is no God. These are godless people that have no concern about the afterlife, about who is an authority over them spiritually. They are authorities in and of themselves, they think, 
And therefore, when they don't understand something, they find it foolish and they mock it. And that's what we find them doing with the Lord Jesus Christ. Bear in mind, to these soldiers, they, they, they were hardened men who had seen many crucifixions, who had been engaged in the activities before the crucifixion of torturing the individual before they would go to be crucified. To them, Jesus was just another crucifixion. For them, they were looking at him as someone who had delusions of grandeur, thinking that he was the king of the Jews. He was found not to be, and now they're here to torment him. They didn't understand who they were tormenting. Look at the scripture. It says, the soldiers, in verse 16 of chapter 15, led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. Now, this would have been a scene where there would have been approximately 600 men. A company was about 600 men. So what we see is Jesus surrounded by about 600 people. Can you imagine that? There's about 200 here this morning, give or take. Triple the size of this crowd. And picture hardened men screaming, cheering against you, hurling insults. That's what Jesus faced. As Jesus was being tortured by these men, this whole company, they put a purple robe on him, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns. Now, think about this for a moment. This crown of thorns represents something that they were doing to lampoon Jesus. They probably went out quickly and found thorns that would work and twisted them together into a crown, and then they jammed it on Jesus' head. And if you look at this crown of thorns, you can see that in the Middle East, thorns aren't like blackberry thorns. These are long thorns. And as they were jamming into Jesus' scalp, this was a part of the torture process that our Lord went through. And he did this because of his great love for us. But you know, when we look at this passage and we see what's going on and we see Jesus surrounded by these soldiers and they're inflicting harm on him and they're intimidating him, it reminds us of part of the 22nd Psalm. In Psalm 22:12, it says this, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey open with their mouths against me. It pictures for us the intensity of these men who would torment the Lord Jesus Christ. As they were tormenting him and as they had placed this crown of thorns on his head, look at what the scripture goes on to say. Verse 18. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Now when a Roman would see Caesar they would immediately say, Hail Caesar. So in their mockery, they were doing the same to Jesus, but not in a sincere tone. They were saying, Hail, King of the Jews, because one, they hated the Jews, and two, it was a way for them to demean him. 
a way for them to say, you are nowhere near our emperor. You're a farce. You're not real. That's what they were saying. What they didn't understand is who they were addressing. The creator, God of the universe, who subjected himself to this kind of treatment because of his love for us. And believe it or not, even because of his love for them. Any of these guards who would repent would find Jesus forgiving them and opening the way for them to experience a relationship with God through him. So Jesus is subjecting himself to all of this. At any moment, he could have stopped it. At any moment, he could have said, enough. But he didn't. He chose to experience it for us. The passage goes on. We find that these soldiers fell on their knees in false homage. Notice the 19th verse says, And again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Now when we look at Mark's description of what Jesus was enduring, imagine having the crown of thorns on your head and then in addition being struck with a staff. It would have driven the thorns more into your scalp and the staff would have cracked against your skull. The spitting on him was a statement of disdain. While it didn't hurt physically to be spit on, it was a way of demeaning him. It was a way of insulting him. It was a way of saying, you are worthless. This was what they were doing, and then it goes on. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. You can picture the sarcasm, the venom of these men as they fall on their knees before the Lord Jesus Christ. And what they didn't realize is this. One day they would fall on their knees for real. The scripture tells us in Philippians chapter 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As these men rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, what they didn't realize is they would one day face him as judge. And their rejection, their false homage, one day would be true homage because they would recognize that he is Lord. The scripture continues and after it talks about this false homage, we come to the 20th verse. And they, when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Now, a part of crucifixion was not only the flogging, not only the mockery and the torment before going to the cross, but having been beaten, you were then marched through the streets of Jerusalem, carrying the upper beam to your own cross. The Romans did this so that they could demonstrate their power and their superiority, but they also did it to deter any future rebellion. Anyone who would stand against them would get the same treatment. 
So this very real visual lesson was given. And so they had Jesus prepared to carry his cross. But then Mark moves in to the faithfulness of our Lord and the love that he displays as the Son of God. He was forcibly led to the place of crucifixion. Look at the 21st verse. And notice in verses 21 through 24, this forcible march to Golgotha. It's revealed in the 21st verse that a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, why was Cyrene, or, or Simon, excuse me, mentioned and, and his kids, Alexander and Rufus? Many Bible scholars believe that Simon became a believer and that his sons, Alexander and Rufus, were part of the early church, a very important part. As a matter of fact, when you read Romans chapter 16, Paul speaks of a man named Rufus as he's winding up the book of Romans, quite possibly the Rufus who's referred to in this passage. But then the text goes on and it talks about how Simon was forced to carry the cross of Jesus. This gives us insight into what was going on with Jesus after being subjected to being beaten so severely. He lacked the physical strength to carry the crossbeam. And so he fell down and a Roman soldier came and made Simon carry it for him so that they could get on with the crucifixion. The heartlessness of it is amazing. Then, verse 22 says, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha. Now, Golgotha is the place of the skull. You might imagine a formation, something like this. As a matter of fact, this is a picture from Google Images of the place that they think Golgotha might have been. And here, Jesus was brought to be crucified. The Romans had everything worked out. Golgotha would have been a raised place so that everyone passing by and in the near vicinity would have been able to see crucifixion taking place. Again, crucifixion was something that was done for public display so that when people saw it, they would know this is the power of Rome and this is what we will face if we stand against it. Golgotha is the place of the skull the place where Jesus was crucified and where hundreds of others had been crucified as well. And then when Jesus arrived, they offered him a mixture of wine and myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, the mixture of wine and myrrh was a mixture that had narcotic effects. A person would take it, it would dull the pain of what they experienced. But Jesus refused to take it that he might experience the fullness of the cross. Why? Because he was paying our sin debt. He was taking upon himself what we deserve because of our sin. And he refused to deaden the suffering. He wanted to experience it in all of its fullness because of his love for us and because his faithfulness to God the Father demanded that he go to the cross. Then, verse 24, 
Mark very simply says, and they crucified him. That one little sentence with just a few words. We can't imagine what this would have meant to someone in the first century. None of us have seen an actual crucifixion. We've seen movies, we've seen representations of the crucifixion, but none of us have seen an actual crucifixion. The smell, the sound, the sight of crucifixion would have been something that the first century readers would have been very familiar with. Rome crucified people all the time. But Jesus' crucifixion was different. As we'll see in just a little bit, even a hardened soldier who had seen scads of crucifixions proclaimed there was something different about Jesus. Jesus' crucifixion communicated some important things. Number one, to the Jewish audience, Jesus' crucifixion pictured a curse. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. To the Jewish observers of the crucifixion, they would have viewed Jesus as being cursed by God. And in a very real and spiritual sense, that's what Jesus took upon himself when he went to the cross. He became a curse for us that he might take the curse we deserve because of our sin upon himself. To the Roman audience, they probably said, well, it's another crucifixion of another person. No big deal. To the followers of Jesus, initially the crucifixion was viewed as a defeat. They didn't understand what was going on until the resurrection. So the crucifixion was significant. But imagine what the crucifixion did to the heart of God. To see his beloved son, the one who had been nothing but obedient, sacrificed, tortured for us. It gives us a glimpse of the great love of God. It helps us to understand how profoundly important we are to the Father that Jesus would experience the crucifixion. As Psalm 22 put it, the piercing of the hands, the joints that were dislocated, all of the horrors of crucifixion experienced by the Son of God. Then notice what Mark says, right after it says, and they crucified him. Mark points out, they divided up his clothes and they cast lots to see what they would get. Again, remember the 22nd Psalm. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Here are the Roman soldiers doing what they traditionally did at a crucifixion. When we read some of the Roman documents, we find that it was a common practice for them to divide up the belongings of the condemned and gamble over them. 
unknown to them, they were fulfilling Scripture by that activity that was common to them. But yet another sign that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. Then Mark continues in the 25th verse. We find that in Jesus' faithfulness and love, he faced the insults of wicked men. Verse 25 says, it was the third hour when they crucified him. Now, Wally's version said 9 a.m., and that's correct. So they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ at 9 a.m. And then verse 26 says, the written notice of charge against him read the king of the Jews. What was commonplace in a crucifixion was a placard that was placed on the cross that discussed the offenses of the condemned. Pilate, no doubt, in a way of saying to the religious leaders in your face, put the statement that he was the king of the Jews. And what he didn't understand, and what those who made the plaque and displayed the plaque didn't understand is what they spoke was truth. Jesus is the king of the Jews, and He's coming again to be the king of this earth. And here he is, crucified. Verse 27 mentions that Jesus was crucified with two robbers. Now, again, what the scripture in our versions translates as robbers, as they've done more research, they find that the word that is used, translated robbers, probably refers more to those who are rebels, those who stand against the Roman government. So here, he's crucified between these two insurrectionists, and there's one on his right and one on his left. And Mark doesn't say, but other gospel writers present, that one of those robbers, those insurrectionists, turned to Christ, even there on the cross, as Jesus was suffering, as Jesus experienced the fullness of all that crucifixion entailed, as Jesus experienced the spiritual and the emotional pain of sin and the cross, he still had a heart for one of the thieves as he welcomed him into the kingdom. Notice the text goes on, though. Verse 29 says, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. What we find in our NIV Bibles is this. Notice it jumps from the 27th verse to the 29th verse. There's a 28th verse that many manuscripts have, and the 28th verse basically states that Jesus was fulfilling Scripture. Luke points this out as well. It says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you the truth, that this must be fulfilled in me, Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus saw being crucified between the two thieves as fulfillment of Scripture. 
The passage that the NIV leaves out we can find in the New American Standard Bible. And it says this, and scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. So Jesus was fulfilling what scripture said would take place. Again, Mark's statement that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of God, and it's proven by his crucifixion. Notice the scripture also tells us that those who passed by hurled insults and shook their head. Again, Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do you see the parallel that takes place here? As they are shaking their head at Jesus and saying, so you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourselves. And then it goes on even more in the 31st verse. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves, saying, he 